Innovation. It is a key driving force for organizational growth and change. Yet most entrepreneurs and even experienced business executives have misconceptions about what it takes to identify and transform a novel idea into innovative products and services that add value, change markets, and customers are willing to buy. In this episode, I'll speak with Lorraine Marsha, a life sciences executive, consultant, professor, and author of The Innovation Mindset, Eight Essential Steps to Transform Any Industry. Lorraine has held executive positions at companies such as IBM Watson Health and Bristol Myers Squibb, and as an entrepreneur founded two startups. Using her vast experience, she developed a proven method for successful innovation. Lorraine has helped numerous entrepreneurs communicate the value of their innovations to investors and successfully market their technologies. Lorraine has taught at Princeton University and is currently an adjunct professor and advisory board member at Columbia Business School. Lorraine, welcome to our podcast series. John, thank you so much to you and also to the New York Institute of Technology for hosting me today. Really excited about our discussion. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And our listeners should know that Lorraine has a book coming out. It's called The Innovation Mindset, Eight Essential Steps to Transform Any Industry. It's a wonderful read. She was kind enough to share an early copy with me. But before we talk about the book, Lorraine, give us our listeners a little description about your background. Well, John, I like to start by telling just a real brief story about my dad and my introduction to innovation, because I think it really sets the stage. And then maybe I can just give a a brief anecdote to how I've applied it in my own background. But when I was about 12 years old, my dad was a serial inventor, and he would always challenge my brother and myself to find at least three solutions to every problem we would encounter. One summer, he took us to the Hot Shops cafeteria in Wheaton, Maryland, and our job was to determine what was slowing down table turnover. So for three days in a row, we took notes in our composition book. We interviewed waitresses and busboys. We observed and we timed table turnover. And ultimately, we determined that the problem was these pesky sugar packets that people would dispense the sugar in the coffee or the tea, and then they'd crumple the packet and the granules would spew all over the table and the floor. And my dad didn't stop there. He walked us through the way that an innovator should tackle a problem. We came up with three different solutions. We tested each of them. We selected one of them. The Hot Shops Cafeteria agreed. It was a winner. And we went on to sell them our product, the Sugar Cube, and they distributed throughout their restaurants in the greater Washington, D.C. area. So needless to say, I was very impressed by that experience, uh, bitten by the bug to problem solve or innovate, as we describe it in today's term. And it's really guided my career. For me, my career has been in the pharmaceutical industry, where I focused on bringing innovative medicines to people in need. And I have tackled that problem from various positions, whether it's been in medical research at the NIH, at a big pharma company, on the services side of it, working with patient foundations. And my goal was to look at the problem of how to expedite getting therapies to patients faster by sitting in the various stakeholder seats and figuring out how each of them could possibly solve that problem. So I share that story because it's one that's just guided my career and helped me to address some of the big thorny problems in my own industry and bring 
a different perspective to how I look at the drug industry. You know, how fortunate for you that your father was so so well informed to think that that was a good idea to engage his kids in sort of that problem solving and innovation process. I was wondering about how my kids might have reacted to that. A wonderful story and certainly gave you your thought process in terms of how do you innovate. But let's talk about that for a moment. The inspiration behind the book, obviously you mentioned the story regarding your father, but what was it that you saw that was missing out there that might help innovators along in their process? John, as I went through my career, whether I was sitting inside large corporations or had my own stint as a serial startup founder, I saw people making the same mistakes over and over again. And the mistakes germinated from a lack of clearly identifying a problem that a customer was willing to pay for. And at the end of the day, if we want to successfully innovate, that does mean bringing a new product or service to the market where a customer is going to pay us to deliver it. That's my definition of a successful innovation. I saw that mistake being made and it was really punctuated by my own first-time experience as a startup founder when a scientific colleague and I had founded a diagnostic company for uh, rare forms of eye disease. And it took me about a year to meet with the right individuals, learn how to raise capital, basically go through all of the steps that are now outlined in my book Mm. in order to successfully launch that company. And so I wanted to write the book that I wish had existed when I had started off on that experience. I wanted to write the book that could benefit the various principal investigators at academic centers that I coach and advise, the clients within large corporations, and all of the would-be innovators for whom they wonder how to make launching a new idea more accessible, more doable. I wanted to give them that handbook and that roadmap to follow so they could learn from my mistakes and accelerate their own path to successfulness. That's wonderful. Unfortunately, for most of us, experience is the best teacher, but to have someone that's gone through the process so often and now has seen some common mistakes and problems and issues out there and just laid down a set of laws on how to overcome them. So let's walk through some of the laws that you've laid down, those eight essential steps to transform any industry. Why don't we start out with that? The most fundamental foundational law, if you don't follow the other seven, please follow this one. And it is that a successful innovation must offer a solution to a problem that a customer is willing to pay for. And I can share just a brief story that can help to exemplify this. Early in my career as an innovator, and I was working with an early stage company, My colleague had licensed a diagnostic technology that could measure something in the body called oxidative stress. It was really a fascinating technology, how accurately it could measure it in any kind of tissue or specimen. And everybody was really excited to take it to market because it could have implications for diseases like heart disease and almost any disease you can imagine could be measured with this technology. Therein lied the problem. We were so excited about this technology and the broad spectrum of solutions that it could possibly lead to that we ultimately didn't have any focus. We didn't really know what disease to focus on, which physicians that we should work with, 
And eventually, by being so disparate in our approach, we ran out of capital and we ended up licensing the technology to a laboratory that used it for research. So this is why I think very early on, you need to start the process with understanding what problem am I solving for and then working your way through what are the possible solutions to that problem as opposed to starting with a solution or a technology and then finding a problem to solve. And more often than not, in corporations, startups, even in very successful companies, I find that bias toward here's a solution, let's go find a problem that it can solve. And that is not the key to success. So that's law number one. Find a problem first that a customer is willing to pay you to solve. You know, it's interesting because even in my background is in sales and marketing, even in selling, getting to the root of a problem for a customer requires often asking lots and lots of questions and not being bashful about asking questions and digging deep to get to the real, what is the issue? And it sounds like it's the same sort of a thing when you're talking about that first step into defining the problem. I think that's a very good observation, John. I do think that this approach works in so many different facets of business, and you're absolutely right. I do a lot of work with sales professionals and help them understand how they can improve their success rate, and we always start with a focus on who is your customer, what are their pain points and unmet needs, how are you going to understand their situation and bring them a solution that helps them move the needle. Excellent. Now, law two, I really appreciate it. This is what you wrote in the book. One great innovation starts with at least three good ideas. Why three good ideas? Well, if you start with at least three good ideas, you can go through the process of testing them, looking at the pros and the cons and the differences among them, and ultimately finding the one that's going to be most successful and beneficial to your customer. So in my first story about the diner and the pesky sugar papers, we ultimately came up with three different solutions. We presented those to the staff at the hot shop. We tested them and it allowed us to see what was flawed with a couple of the solutions and ultimately choose the one that was the best fit. So by coming up with three, it'll give you various alternatives. It'll help you understand the problem better. It helps you understand the customer and what's going to be appealing to them better. And ultimately, you'll make a better choice as far as the solution that you take to market once you've down-selected to that one that's the best fit. Got it. Now, the next law you talk about is innovators are dreamers, but they're also realists. It was an interesting way you put this. Keep your ideas as simple as possible and identify your MVP, your minimum viable product and then test. So the MVP is actually a concept that was coined by two Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. And it's really been the mantra of the theme around fail fast. So if you can invest a minimum amount of resources and capital to come up with your solution, but with a minimal number of features, you can very quickly test it with your customers find out if it's feasible and whether it's really worth continuing to develop it. And a great example of this, back a number of years ago, there was a company called Zappos, a popular online shoe company. 
The company was actually founded in 1999 when the founder was looking for a special kind of boot and couldn't find them at a mall. So we had an idea to sell footwear online through a website. He created the website and he offered a very limited number of shoes, running shoes and hiking shoes. And with a very limited number of brands, it was really just a small beta test, if you will. He found out that people were pretty comfortable buying their hiking shoes and running shoes, these particular brands online. But what they didn't know was that behind the scenes, he was actually buying the shoes up from brick and mortar retailers and then delivering them to people's homes. Now, that's kind of, you know, we think that's maybe a funny story right now. But it was really a brilliant way to start a new kind of company when you think about it, because he only fulfilled the orders when they came in. He controlled his flow of resources, and he was able to prove that the concept worked. And once he had a critical mass of followers, obviously he expanded it out so that he offered a much larger range of shoes. He created the ability to transact financial transactions online. And the shoes, of course, were delivered probably by Amazon at some point in time. So I think that's a a wonderful example of an MVP for something that ultimately did become very successful. Wow. And that sort of rolls us into the next law, which is 100 customers can't be wrong. What do you mean by that? Well, what I have found, whether, again, it's working with corporations or with startups or even in the courses that I teach to my students, The very hardest thing to do is to go out and identify customers and then have conversations with them and learn what it is they like and don't like about your idea. Really, really hard thing to do. But it's the most critical step. Second to finding a problem that a customer is willing to pay for in that sentence is finding the customer who's willing to pay to solve your problem. So doing that voice of the customer research is absolutely critical. And through my own experience, I've determined that at least starting out with 100 interviews is critical for a few reasons. First of all, it gives you enough of a sample that you can actually come up with some statistics and cut the data into different segments and quadrants and and determine something meaningful from it. Secondly, it gives you a number of different voices that you can interview in different means. So you can do some small group interviews like focus groups. You can do some online surveys and gather more quantitative information. You can actually take your MVP and you can test it one-on-one with some customers. So 100 gives you something that's critical mass, statistically significant, and you can attain that by these different methodologies that are going to give you a nice broad spectrum and diversity of perspective with your customers. It's also somewhat foundational, and I know we're going to talk about a pitch later, but it's one of those things that any investor is going to want to see and said, okay, great, but what's your customer feedback been like? And I think that's so important to gain confidence with any investor group is to demonstrate that you've done that type of research. The first thing that the investor is going to ask you is, how many reference customers do you have Who have you talked to and what have you learned from them? And I actually have a terrific antidote in the book. I interviewed Spencer Raskoff, co-founder of Zillow and co-founder of Hotwire. And he gives a terrific story about how Zillow created personas of their different customers 
and stakeholders. So they had Bob the Builder and Len the Lender, and they went so far as to put posters around the office building of these different personas so that their team never forgot the customers that they were there to serve and the perspectives that they have. It's fascinating stuff. And, you know, you, you get a lot of, out of that when you actually sit and listen to the client and get that feedback. The next law, it's interesting and it's the power of the pivot. And I loved your definition of what you described as the pivot, which is a change in strategy without a change in vision. Walk us through that, if you would. Yes. Well, the pivot is pretty fundamental to any company. And when we look at companies that have had successful pivots, They've known what their vision is, what it is they wanted to accomplish, but they just determined that they needed a slight tweak in the roadmap in order to get there, as opposed to some companies that maybe have failed because they took the data that was coming in that showed them that perhaps they weren't on the right road, and instead of making those adjustments, they completely changed direction or tried to be a very different kind of company. And I think a great example of a pivot, and this is one that's in the book, there were so many pivot opportunities during COVID. It's just rich with all the examples of how we had to be innovative, companies had to be innovative. But I tell one story about a private healthcare system, the first actually, that was created in the country of Bangladesh. And the founder of it, Silvana Sinha, found herself with a brick-and-mortar offering with a little bit of telehealth faced with COVID where people were not able to physically get to her center. But undaunted by that, she actually became the first privately approved COVID testing lab in the country. So she pivoted. She used her brick-and-mortar. She used her lab facility in order to be able to offer COVID testing to patients. And she also brought forth her telemedicine portal. So that's a great story that emphasizes she never changed her vision of bringing really top quality healthcare to the people of Bangladesh. She just reacted to the environment and the constraints that she experienced and made some adjustments in terms of what she focused on at that particular point in time. The company is thriving today. They've gone on to raise capital and they're now back on their roadmap of being able to offer top quality health care to the citizens of Bangladesh. It's one of those things that you deal with the constraints. In the book, you do talk about constraints, improved problem solving, limited resources. I always love the story of Apollo 13, where a group of scientists are brought together. You know, there's no, no time for this, but we have to figure out based on what's available, how are we going to solve the problem? That's exactly right. And so often it's difficult to see those signs and symptoms that the market landscape is changing, your customers aren't responding positively, but there are definitely signals or triggers that I describe in the book so that you can be a little bit more analytical in terms of understanding what's going on in the market and when you do need to pivot. And I love the story of Apollo 13, right? The famous line in there, uh, gentlemen, failure is not Not an option. option. I just love that. The resilience of that too, right? They were just going to solve that problem and get those guys home. I'll read off the next couple of laws. And I want to focus our attention, if we could, a little bit about law eight. But law six was 
Uh, successful innovation flows from a sound business model and plan. I encourage our listeners to get the book and read through that and the steps. Law number seven, the odds are against you, but you can improve the odds. There are steps to take needed to de-risk your business model. Again, very insightful. But the last law you wrote in here is, there is no innovation without persuasion and that coaxing of capital. And I'll know a lot of the entrepreneurs out there, often this is, the, this is a problem for them, coming up with that right pitch, the right model to talk about, understanding who their audience is. Let's walk through that a little bit if we could. Thank you, John. I'd, I'd be delighted to do that. And I would agree. I've seen a lot of wonderful ideas never make it any further because the pitch failed to be convincing. The first thing that one needs to recognize, especially when pitching an investor, is to put yourself in their shoes. You're asking them to provide capital in order for you to be able to commercialize this idea. So number one, they've got to feel as though your vision is well-organized, clear, and they understand where you're heading. Clearly, they want to understand the problem that you're solving. It's helpful if you can quantify and qualify that problem and then give proof that there is a customer who's willing to pay for it. So again, we talked about your need to have market information, customer interviews, lots of verbatims about the customers. So that's absolutely critical. The investor also is going to want to know that they're going to be able to get their investment back in a reasonable period of time. So that means that they've got to understand your solution, the feasibility of your solution, your ability to bring it to market, the fact that you have a good idea of what your strategy, your roadmap is, a sales plan, the right teams, roles, relevant experience, and very importantly, a financial forecast. So they're going to need to see what your forecast is in terms of revenues and profit over some period of time and believe that that is really grounded in reality and an accurate understanding of the marketplace and also the operational aspects of what it's going to take to bring this this product to market. And then in terms of how you deliver it, you have got to be able to tell your story in 15 to 20 minutes. I lay out the 10 killer slides that you need and how to articulate each of them within one to two minutes, speaking in sound bites. But you've got to be able to do all of this succinctly and convincingly so that at the end of that 20 minutes, the investor knows who you are, what you're doing, who your customer is, and how you're going to make money, and why this is a good investment for them. Lorraine, that's so well put. I think that people often speak and elaborate too much on something that's obvious. Understand that these are smart people. And you've approached them primarily because they understand the industry that you're in and they've had opportunities to invest in either similar companies or in the same industry. You want to keep it as focused and tight as possible in order to communicate what it is that you're looking to do, how much money do you need, when will they get their money back. It's really somewhat that simple. Absolutely, John. Very well said. And it just comes down to the theme that we've been discussing, which is know your customer. And in this case, the investor is your customer and you need to intimately understand their business motivations and why they would find investing in your company or technology an appealing opportunity. I really appreciate that you dedicated a chapter in the book to 
unique challenges women innovators face and the disparity in terms of the number of patents held by women. Half as many women as men are likely to start their own business. Give us some perspective on the issue and what solutions that you think are necessary to help women become the innovators that they really should be. I am very passionate about exposing more women to the opportunity to be innovators, to be entrepreneurs. I think that for lots of different reasons, it isn't something that maybe naturally women have been exposed to or have thought about. But if we can encourage more women in STEM, science, technology, education, and math careers, which that has seen low numbers of women participants. So I think it starts fundamentally with trying to draw more women into STEM courses in their education and STEM fields as they graduate, where they have an opportunity to be exposed to developing new technologies, developing new solutions and bringing new ideas forward. I think also, if we can get more women investors that would also help. Only about 2 to 3% of the investor community, particularly among VCs, are women. If we could get more women investors, then women investors are naturally going to look a little bit more favorably at women innovators, entrepreneurs, try to be supportive of them, and try to encourage them. And we've seen that, for example, there's a a venture group called Plum Alley. It was founded by three women who were formerly on Wall Street. And their goal was to try to encourage more women in STEM fields and to fund companies where there's at least one female founder. The company is in deep tech as a way to encourage and support more women innovators and entrepreneurs. Brilliant. I mean, it's just, it makes eminently good sense that we need to engage what is now over half our population in becoming the next generation of innovators. So one last question for you, Lorraine. What one word describes who you are? I'm going to give you two words, but that's because they work together. So I am about positive energy. And the word positive is important because I believe that the innovation mindset is about a passion for problem solving, a natural curiosity, and a drive to make change. And the energy part is because if you've got the right energy and you embrace this idea of pivoting, you never fail, you keep learning, you keep moving forward. And to me, that is the essence of being resilient. And being resilient is about always bouncing back. And so to be an innovator, to be an entrepreneur, You need that positive energy so that you've got that innovation mindset so that you can pivot. You're always moving forward. That is just great. Thank you so much for that. And to our listeners, she really has done a great job in demystifying, as she said, the process of the steps to transform any industry in the book, The Innovation Mindset. Lorraine, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. And thank you, NYIT. Thanks. In this episode, Lorraine provides us with a roadmap for our innovation journey. Like any road trip, we will encounter detours, delays, and a host of circumstances that are difficult to predict. But having a list of core tenets keeps us focused on what's important and being as efficient and realistic as possible. To start our journey, she points to the cruciality of the first most foundational law. A successful innovation offers a solution to a problem that a customer is willing to pay for, so obsess over defining the problem. 
The second law, Great Innovation starts with at least three good ideas, offers an opportunity to broaden your perspective when searching for a solution. In the third law, innovators are dreamers, but they're also realists. Lorraine advises keeping it simple, identifying your minimum viable product, and then testing it to see if it's feasible. The idea is to fail fast and not waste time and resources. The fourth law, 100 customers can't be wrong, is about uncovering whether what you've developed meets customers' unmet needs and question, will they buy it? The fifth law, be ready to pivot at any point in the process. Lorraine defined pivot as a change in strategy without a change in vision. Be willing to course correct while never losing sight of your objective. Law six, a successful innovation flows from a sound business model and plan. Be sure to create a living document that will help guide your business and paint a clear picture of your vision and objectives for others, especially investors. The seventh law is the odds are against you, but you can improve the odds. In the book, she describes how serial entrepreneurs de-risk their businesses to enhance their chances of success. It's about taking a sobering view of what you'll encounter and how to plan for it. And number eight, there's no innovation without persuasion, creating the perfect pitch to attract investment in your ideas. Lorraine described her 10-20-30 rule, 10 slides, 20 minutes, 30-point font. This includes having a clear and well-organized vision describing the potential ROI and related time frame, and succinctly, in 20 minutes or less, telling your story, including the big problem you're solving, its market size, your strategy and team, and financial plans. Lorraine also took the time to discuss the issues facing women innovators and entrepreneurs, the need to encourage more women in STEM, science, technology, education, and math careers, where they have an opportunity to be exposed to developing new technologies and solutions and bringing new ideas forward. Lastly, Lorraine used a phrase to describe herself as positive energy. The innovative mindset is about passion for problem solving, a natural curiosity, and a drive to create change. We thank Lorraine for sharing her ideas and valuable insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Interim Dean of the School of Management and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. And our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Until next time.